Um, well, I, I just want to say once again, it's, it's an honor uh, to be here with you guys. It's an honor to uh, have the opportunity to open God's Word, hear from it, um, to allow it to um, really sit over our lives. And that's um, my hope uh, for all of us today um, as we jump into, uh, into the text. Um, this week, I was, uh, I, w- I was commuting into work. I work in Cambridge, so I have to get on commuter trains uh, to get there. And commuting is just a weird situation. It's something that took me a while to get used to. Uh, I just started this about a year and a half ago. And people have been commuting for years and years, so they're just used to it. Like, it's nothing new to them. Um, but it's a weird situation. So I got on the train, I think it was Wednesday morning this week, Uh, I get on the train, and I'm walking down the aisle to find my seat, and I sit down, and as I sit down, I realize this old man that's sitting next to me is doing one of these. I mean, just a full out, like completely asleep on his chest, you know, just like hunched over in his chair, and I'm just thinking, what? What in, in, where else in public is this acceptable? That somebody could do this, be asleep. I mean, he's, he's, he's seconds away from snoring. And that's, that's what commuting is uh, in, in, the real world, in, in the real world. But I sat down, and I was actually uh, going to use that time um, to even prepare for this morning and to really uh, read the text and sit with the text and pray. And I did. And it was incredible to me that in that situation, sitting next to a man that is embarrassing himself for the public to see that God spoke and that God speaks to us anywhere uh, and everywhere and that we can pause before him and, and, and pray to him and seek him and he speaks. And I felt like that morning he really impressed upon my heart for all of us this morning uh, from the text that we're going to read and we're going to walk through that we would be, that we would again allow the text to sit over and above our lives in such a way that we can be corrected by it, that we can be challenged by it, but that also, in the end, that we can be encouraged by it. And so I want you to keep that in mind, uh, especially right now as we read through uh, this text uh, that we're going uh, to deal with. And I apologize for the, uh, the sound of my voice. I'm, I have a little bug right now, but... We're going to read uh, John 6, obviously continuing on through uh, the Gospel of John. This is John 6, verses 25 through 40. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What do we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, 
But my Father gives the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Let us pray before we get into this. Father, we come before you as a humble people, simply asking that as we get into your text, as we recognize this scripture to be your word, and that as we walk through it together this morning, that we would allow it to transform our lives. That is your will, and we pray that that would be the case this morning. So I pray uh, that we would have humble hearts um, to hear from you this morning. We thank you for the grace you have shown us uh, through the gift of your word. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, you know, I think it's important here to get the context for uh, this passage. Just quickly, we are kind of jumping in uh, to this text, and anytime you do that, obviously, you want to try to figure out what exactly is happening here, what has happened before the text to give us a little context for what we're dealing with here. So as, Jesus, or as Joey preached on last week, that was, uh, that was a nice little slip. You're, you're welcome. Um, as Joey preached on last week, Jesus fed the 5,000. And, and people obviously witnessed this. People were present uh, people witness that. And so right after that, Jesus leaves. He just up and is out. And the people obviously are intrigued by this and want to find him. And so they go and seek, and they even go across a lake for this purpose. And so they get there, and they ask this question, Rabbi, when did you come here? And that's where we pick up the story. And so the people are seeking him, but I think we have to immediately Say, okay, why are they seeking him? Why are the people coming after Jesus? What are they looking for? Well, Jesus, in his response to them, cuts right to the heart of the matter. You know, it's so funny. Don't you love how Jesus will get these questions? And this happens throughout all of the Gospels. But he'll get these questions, and then he'll answer in this, like, mysterious, weird way that almost makes you wonder, did he actually hear the question I mean, these guys are like, Jesus, we just came over and asked you, where did you, you know, when did you get here? And Jesus immediately goes into this tangent about, well, you don't want me for, for me, you want me for other things. But Jesus, what he's doing is he's cutting to the heart of the matter. Obviously, Jesus knows what's going on here. And these people have ulterior motives. See, they're seeking Jesus, not for Jesus, <clears throat> They're seeking Jesus for the benefits that Jesus offers. 
They're coming after Jesus for the bread that Jesus offers. They're coming to Jesus for the political aspects and the aspirations that they have that Jesus might be able to help them out with. And, you know, as I was reading through this text, as I was uh, walking through it, uh, even listening to other people, other commentators, you know, I, I think that that reality of the crowd and their uh, ulterior motives should in some ways hit home for us. For us to say, do I pursue Jesus for Jesus? Or do I pursue Jesus for the benefits that he brings? And again, as I started to immediately try to apply that to myself, You know, I have to immediately say there are definitely times in my life that I'm guilty of pursuing Jesus for other reasons. I mean, I, I, I love church. I love being around you people. And I can easily come to church and be a part of this church and help out in, in any way I can and do and never have Jesus. And never pursue Jesus for relationship with Jesus. But enjoy all of the benefits that come with a community of faith like this. That was maintained and and purchased by Jesus. So I want us to, right up front, to ask ourselves that question. and, and, And to think about that, consider that, even as we continue to walk through the text together. So in verse 27... Jesus says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? You see, I think this conversation, uh, the two points, Jesus talking up front and then the, the people's response reveals to us the different perspectives that we're dealing with here. And I think this is something that we're going to see as we continue to walk through the text. We're going to see this over and over and over. Because on one side, you have Jesus who's talking about grace, who's talking about receiving what God has given them. And on the other, you have the crowd whose immediate mindset goes to works and goes to earning it, doing something to earn what Jesus is offering. A commentator says this about the crowd and their mindset, the way in which they're interpreting what's going on here. They display no doubt about their intrinsic ability to meet any challenge God may set before them. They evince no sensitivity to the fact that eternal life is first and foremost a gift. So we have these two perspectives, these two mindsets going on here. Jesus with grace, he just keeps hitting it throughout, and the people with works and trying to figure out how they earn it, how they go about uh, achieving this bread or, or, or what Jesus offers. So Jesus answered them in verse 29 and says, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So it's at this point that I think that, you know, 
the, the crowd wasn't ready for this. I think it's at this point in the story where the crowd's mind is just on the ground, like blown, because Jesus is blowing up their paradigm. He's blowing up the way in which they work, the way, the way in which they interpret the world. Think about this. What else in our world works this way in terms of grace? What else works purely according to grace? If we're honest, not much. I mean, not, not a whole lot in our world operates according to grace, so we can kind of understand maybe where the crowd is coming from, why they would think this. You know, as I was dealing with this, as I was studying, I'm thinking, okay, what does what does operate according to grace? What is it in our world uh, that, that maybe does uh, operate that way? We have a, a, a 10-month-old son, Isaiah, and, and it made me think of the first couple months of his life. So right now, he's 10 months old. This morning, we were on the changing table. I was changing his diaper. He's cooing and calling you know, and making all these great noises. He has syllables that he says. He smiles at just about anything I do. But when he was two and three months old, this kid gave me nothing. I mean, it was sheer slave labor. And any parent in here knows what I'm talking about, that you have this creature that you serve at any point in time that they cry or fuss. At 2 a.m., you're up, you're serving them, and they give you nothing in return. I mean, they don't even know that you really exist. I mean, they, they're, they're, their head's bobbing. They don't, they don't know what's going on. I remember Jess and I used to sit around and look at them, and we'd be doing stuff, you know, trying to get them to, to respond, and we would swear to each other that he made eye contact. Like, his head would be bobbing like this around the, you know, he can't even see anything, and we would swear to each other. He, he connected, right? That, that just happened. I don't know if you saw it, but I saw it. We were so desperate for him to give something back to us, but he didn't. He didn't. He, he, he really, you know, as long as he was alive, he really couldn't care less about us. He didn't know we were there. But other than that, I have a hard time thinking about what in our world really operates according to grace. So we should understand where the crowd's coming from when they're operating according to works. It's their natural mindset. I think we deal with the same thing regularly. Jesus here is trying to blow that up, though, and trying to get them to recognize that things have changed, that there is a new covenant, and this new covenant is not going to operate in the same way that they think it should or the way in which they would believe it to be. In verse 30, so they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. You might not see it at first from the crowd's response in there, uh, the way in which they respond to Jesus and the way they, they come at him, but I almost kind of feel like there's a, 
there's a certain level of, of, of gamesmanship going on here uh, between the crowd and Jesus. So again, Jesus is, is, is saying some stuff that really is shaking the foundations of the way in which they think. And it's almost like the, the crowd says, okay, so if, if, if you're wanting us to, to walk down this road with you, if you're wanting us to think in terms like you think we should, we need to see something first. You know, we need to, we need to legitimize you. You need to prove yourself to us before we're willing to hear any of this noise that you're talking about. And so they refer to this manna from heaven, you know, and, and, and at first sight, it, it may, might not make sense, but what they're doing is they're referring back to Old Testament days with Moses, and specifically it's Exodus 16 that they're going back to. And so what happened, just kind of quick context on that, is that <clears throat> Moses was leave, leading the Israelites through the wilderness, and the, the Israelites were just a bunch of angry, bitter, they're kind of like angry, bitter stepchildren. Like they constantly felt like they were just being dogged, like nothing was fair. Uh, and I can say that because I'm a stepchild and I've been there before. And that's how the Israelites acted to Moses. They're constantly saying, what did you bring us out here for? God's not doing, God's not holding up his end of the deal. We were better off in Egypt where we were slaves. These people didn't even make sense. And this is what they were doing to Moses. And because of that, God, because they're so stubborn, God actually shows them grace in, in, in the way in which he feeds them. And he feeds them for 40 years from heaven, giving them manna. And so that's what the people <clears throat> here are referring to. But first of all, Jesus corrects their thinking because the people have given that credit to Moses. God is the one that was gracious to his people, to, to the Israelites in Exodus 16. But the people gave that credit to Moses. And what they're saying is that Moses performed this miracle. And there was Jewish thought of the day that said that one would come and, and would uh, perform signs even more incredible than Moses. And so that's what the people are doing here. They're wanting a sign even more incredible than Moses. But Jesus corrects their thinking again and says, wait, 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 before we get into this, Moses didn't do that. You have it wrong. My, my father did that. My father prepared or, or provided the manna in Exodus 16. And similarly, my father is providing the bread now. Once again, bringing it back to grace, bringing it back to grace, bringing it back to grace. Verse 33, um, Jesus goes on and says, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. I think it's at this point in the story that Jesus is really starting to, to maybe open the door up a little bit to where he's going to finish in verse 35 through 40. He's starting to open the door up really, to the gospel and to the specifics of it. Up until this point, there's been this, uh, this conversation that has been very abstract. You know, Jesus has been talking about bread from heaven. 
They've gone on to Exodus 16, the manna from heaven. It's been some pretty abstract ideas. But here in verse 33, Jesus, I believe, starts to bring it down to earth, in, 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 so to speak, and get direct with the people to talk about what this means that he is the bread of life, what that means for them and for the world. And yet in verse 34, the people continue to demonstrate that they're just not on that same level yet, that Jesus is talking about things here and the crowds here. They say, sir, give us this bread always. Give it to us. Okay, great. Give it to us. Once again, demonstrating that the people are there for the benefit that comes with Jesus and not necessarily Jesus. But they're thinking in earthly and physical terms. Okay, great, that all that talk you, you, you've done is great, but just give us the bread always. But Jesus is going to take it further, obviously, in verses 35 through 40. And we'll read that. Uh, it is, uh, you know, it's a, it's a number of verses, but I think this is really what this entire passage has been leading up to uh, for Jesus to really preach the gospel to these people. He's been preparing them to understand what he's going to talk about. He's been warring against the perspectives that the people are works-based and what he's talking about is grace-based. So he's been working on that up until this point. So in Verse 35, it says this, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So Jesus drives home this point in response to the people's idea of give us this bread always. Again, they're thinking in physical terms. Jesus is thinking in spiritual terms. Thinking, they're thinking in, in, in temporal terms. He's thinking in e eternal terms. And he says, you don't get it. What I'm offering, you don't need more of. I'm the bread of life. A new thing is starting here. And once you have the bread of life. Once you have tasted it, there's no need for more. There's no need for continued feeding. The satisfaction is complete. We don't need more after we've had Jesus. Once we have experienced Jesus, once we're in relationship with Jesus, we don't need more. It's amazing that God has offered his son in pure grace to us. 
just as he did with the Israelites in Exodus 16. He's offered his son to us as the new covenant, as the new bread of life, that his son, that Jesus would be able to sustain us. So tying back into the question that we had earlier of what is it that we pursue Jesus for? What are those other things? What are those benefits that we seek out Jesus for? Well, I think another question is also, what do we make the bread of life? What is it that we, uh, we see Jesus as the bread of life, but we can also at times make other things the bread of life? But Jesus is saying that there is complete and utter satisfaction in him, and it's all that we need, nothing more is necessary. And as if, if, and as if to tie just kind of a nice little red bow on, on this, uh, the gospel, what Jesus has just expressed to the people, in verse 39, he speaks of uh, the completion of this and, and the finality of once we do know Jesus and once we have experienced him and once we have had faith in him, we've experienced that grace, that it's perfected in him, that he perfects it through the Father, or in, you know, the Father perfects it through Jesus, and that it is complete, that we don't have to worry about just having a season of being with Jesus and having a relationship and, and experiencing grace, but that it's always, and that God has completed it and is faithful to complete it, to bring it to completion. So in closing, I hope that this passage does both challenge us to really uh, deal with, does our, does our heart operate according to grace? Or does our heart <clears throat> operate according to works? That's a, that's a, a good question for us to, 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 to deal with. I think our hearts are prone, as I've said, to deal with works. And we want to be careful about that because what Jesus is preaching, the gospel, is all about grace. And according to John 6, we have to be reminded that we are children of a gracious God. So I hope that we're challenged to vigilantly remove any behavior, any mentality that we have that operates according to works, and instead to rest in the satisfaction that is Christ, to rest in the satisfaction of the knowledge that our God is gracious, that he has offered us the bread of life. He has offered us Jesus. And because of that, there's nothing more necessary. I hope that we end there, that we're encouraged by the gospel. We're encouraged to move forward in that, in, in, in what Christ has done for us. Let me pray that for us this morning.